sauce, yes. We're, we're doing a check-in. Are, are you hungry? I'm a little, <laughs> actually, yes. Oh, and I love wings. Um, there's this place, shout out to Tallahassee, although it's closed now, there's a place called Hip Hop Chicken, and they have the best wings. They had the best wings. And then East Lansing, East Lansing, shout out to uh, Fresh Fish. They have crack wings, and they are delicious. And so we want to know, and we're going to talk to each other real quick about yeah. what wing sauce you are feeling like today. My mood? What's yeah. Mood? I am like, I am in this piece just simple, but a little, you know, a little flavor, mm. little tang. Mm. Spicy tang. barbecue. A little spicy barbecue today. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I'm like super duper buffalo. Like, like extra spicy yes i am in a mood Ooh. i've just been real hot for like the last month i think Ooh, you got a side of ranch i don't like ranch oh. it's a little too <clears throat> <laughs> culturally different for me but no i i a side of beer Oh, and, okay. and vodka. A little blue moon. I could yeah. do blue moon. Yeah. yeah. That's how I'm feeling. Okay. Mm. Well, welcome to the Scholar Tea, people. Welcome. Episode two. Thank mm. you for those of you that came back for more. And thank you to those of you. This is your first time playing with us. So who are we? Uh, what are we going to be doing today? All right. So we are going to highlight our Scholar of the Week. And Shauna is going to let us know about the great work of Dr. Chris Nelson. We are going to spill a little tea recently, maybe a week or two ago. There's been some messiness in the streets. So I think we need to talk a little bit about the Howard University situation. Mm. I think we can talk broadly about the embezzlement of coins mm. in higher education. Mm -hmm. um, and then we are excited to engage and have some wonderful conversation with Dr. Keon McGuire. And I need to let y'all know what's been problematic and I need to hear from y'all too. And then we'll end with your jokes. My secret sauce. <laughs> all right, all right. So today um, we would like to honor our scholar of the week, uh, Dr. Chris Nelson. Dr. Nelson is of the Dine and Laguna Pueblo tribes of the Southwest. Dr. Nelson received her doctorate in higher education from the University of Arizona Center for the Study of Higher Education. With over 10 years of higher education experience, she has a cross-sectioning of experiences ranging from educational pathways in STEM, policy research, and student affairs. The research she engages with strives to challenge the status quo of higher education for Native students and their communities. Her primary research interest focuses on finance in higher education, which ranges from student experiences to policy. Chris also blends critical theory and indigenous perspectives and methods to explore the long-term impacts of pre-college access programs. And I think something that's really cool about Chris's research is that she's really challenging us to think differently even about qualitative research and what it means to create a robust research study in spaces that really value high yield numbers, especially when it relates to looking at underrepresented populations. And so I, I really appreciate and value Dr. Nelson's work and we really want to lift her up today as the scholar of the week shout out to dr nelson all right so let's spill a little tea yes please it's a little messy too mm -hmm. it's gonna get a little sticky it's hot yeah um so for those of you that love those social media streets all over twitter <laughs> all over instagram i saw some facebook messages and some facebook groups we're talking about the situation at howard university and for those of you that need a refresher or you haven't heard um huffington post black voices um posted an article and what happened with the financial aid office there were six people that were fired and i think are currently being investigated for criminal charges they were taking financial aid funds specific 
grant money designated for students and giving themselves refund checks, basically, that, of hundreds of thousands of dollars. Well, somebody said like embezzlement is like when you, I'll find it. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's, it's embezzlement. Mm-hmm. Um, and the students at Howard have been, number one, resisting in the sense of some of the things the administration was doing. There's some issues with campus housing. There's some issues with the university leadership responding to students and the way in which they've been responding to students. So there's some things happening and you get the link in a group chat. You go back and forth on the group chat. You on Twitter, you following the thread of what's going on. And I've seen three different sides of what's happening, right? Mm -hmm. So one side from people that attended HBCUs, alumni of Howard that are like, why are we putting out this message and packaging this message and making the message problematic? So people on the outside looking into our spaces are using this, right, as as ammunition. Mm. So that's one narrative out there. There's a narrative out there to like, we need to call this out. We need to name it and we need to shame these people. So people know that this is not okay and this should not be happening. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And then there's the third side of this of thinking about, we should not be talking about this at all. Right. Like this is not something that we should be mentioning at all in the sense of these people are innocent until proven guilty. They have a right to their privacy. We are using someone else's downfall as entertainment Mm. and that kind of side of the situation i see all three sides of the situation it's probably a fourth fifth and sixth side mm-hmm. to this um but for me i'm i am in the space of these people do need to be called out it does need to be named university president it sounds like has known about this since may 2017 maybe before that i was reading an article and there's a there was a whistleblower that kind of spelled everything out but that's how we got the tyrone memes and some other things going on just messy just messy but for me it's like these things happen every day in higher education um there, i just read an article something that happened at harvard things have happened in florida you know mm-hmm. things have happened at the university of missouri like things have happened across the country and for me it's thinking about if you're a thief you're a thief okay got it but something is happening in higher ed where people are thinking they can get away with this right like whether it's accountability oversight something's not happening that needs to happen and some people are going to say right like these are situational these might be siloed this might not be an academic across higher ed and i'm not sure if it's an academic but every few weeks there's a new person popping up white black Right, gray, yellow, green, that is popping up. <laughs> talking about they, colors now. <laughs> they stealing money, right? Well, yeah. A uh, dude in Florida, the director of housing, yeah. actually had purchased himself furniture. Purchased furniture. Furniture. And it was, like, expensive. <laughs> it was rich. Okay, so, yes, I do believe that we should be calling folks out. However, I do believe in process. Anybody that knows me understands that I try to do things. Yeah, that, due process is uh, important. Right. And so if, for example, the president needed to find out who else was involved, I'm not sure who else is involved. I'm not going to start proclaiming that this is what I'm working on if I'm trying to really identify the issues in my institution, right? And so it's not until I feel like I've rooted out the problem that I believe I would even start to formulate some kind of idea into how I would share that information and inform the community. I also think that, yes, there is the necessity of, of demonstrating that the person has, for lack of a better word, demonstrated guilt or mm-hmm. has been involved in the, the situation. But, but I do think there's a difference between um, innocence and actually completing those tasks, right? Like you could be proven innocent and still been involved. So 
I don't know. I think it's just really important to make sure that the process has gone through completion as much as possible before you try to broadcast those things, especially with something so sensitive as finances. And so I don't know exactly what happened in terms of the delay in information, but... So, so yes, I hear you. I understand where you're coming from, but... (laughs) But Those I statements. I know, I know. <laughs> trying, to, trying to model. Um, but I also think by not being transparent, you then run the risk of everything that you've said since then being held accountable to that. And what I mean by that is, so the president has made statements of the university being in debt because students not paying their bills. When there's a student stealing money from a fund that was supposed to be supporting those students that can't pay their bills, right? So then you're in contradiction of yourself. Um, You're in contradiction of what you say you stand for to scapegoat the students for Mm -hmm. the university's debt issue. Like all of those things then become brighter in the limelight because of statements you've made. And now you look like you have not been transparent around this particular issue that has cost the institution a million dollars. I I did totally pull him out of it, right? I know, I know. You're talking generally. You're you're talking generally. And I do understand the the need for due process. Mm -hmm. Due process takes time but I do think that then your administration has to think about what am I doing what am I saying during this time of Mm -hmm. due process that Mm -hmm. might not be affecting this particular case at this time but then can come back at me because people are seeing me as lacking transparency Mm -hmm. yeah you don't wall out the whole time (laughs) and then maybe something else comes out of it that implicates you even you know hello (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> or it doesn't even it implicate you, but like what it looks like is sexier than what it is. So mm-hmm. I'm going to go what it looks like. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've had this conversation for decades at this point, having in-house conversations, you know, out in the field. So what do you think about folks being willing to talk about HBCU issues in the public sphere and the critique of sharing our business in the streets? Right. And and I and I do have to name like I'm not an HBCU graduate. I've never worked mm-hmm. at an HBCU. Closest friends, dearest friends, right? Like that is. You have friends that went to HBCUs. I do, I do, <laughs> and, right? Like, I got a black friend. You got three black friends. I do, <laughs> I do. Love them dearly. Fan like family. Right? They're like family. <laughs> they feel ownership of that experience of protecting those institutions, mm-hmm. of transforming those institutions into places that they want to see. So I don't know if I want to speak on that, but I I do know that in order for transformative change to happen, that I think some of these people are calling for, that some of these scholars are calling for, some of these alumni are calling for, trying to keep it in house, I don't think has worked, right? Like it, it has not worked. And just because I have not attended an HBCU does not mean that I can't be critical or can't contribute to thinking about what transformative change looks like for the students that they are intended to serve, for the mission that they say they uphold. I do think that there are people that can contribute to that conversation that might not be in the family, right? And also, just because I didn't go to an HBCU doesn't mean that I'm not invested in Absolutely, success, absolutely, right? yeah. Something I've been trying to help people understand when they talk about or denigrate HBCUs and, and they utilize that wealth factor, right? Um, and they also highlight certain HBCUs over others. Everyone points to Spelman, Morehouse, Howard. I think what people don't understand when it comes to the financial implications of HBCUs history, we were also supposed to succeed utilizing the Morrill Land Grant. 1890. Right? And so we look to and often compare these institutions to places like uh, Penn State, Maryland, Ohio State, Michigan State, 
and not understanding that the states and the government stole the money that was supposed to be dedicated to HBCUs and placed them into Penn States and placed them into Ohio State. So it starts and, from and the it's very still beginning. happening, right? Like oh, it's absolutely. Still, like I was looking at Maryland. I think Maryland's getting sued. Or there, there was a settlement recently, right? Like mm-hmm. it's still happening to this day when thinking about higher ed policy at the state and federal level. Or my alma mater stole FAMU's law school's books, right? And also try to then encroach on their engineering program because in the Sunshine State, you can only have a certain type of institution in a certain uh, proximity. And so you can't have two engineering schools right next to each other. And so Florida State tried to encroach on FAMU. Those aren't the conversations that are had in public that I think should be had, but I think there needs to be a balance in those conversations. Yeah, absolutely. So as much as I'm defending HBCUs, I need people to understand, me personally as a non-HBCU grad, I am invested and I, I want them to succeed, but they're not above critique. Well, that's the tea. So, given the limited amount of time that we have um, today, um, we have on the line Dr. Kia McGuire. And if you could just briefly give us a rundown of who you are and where you are in your professional life. Hi, right. uh, cool, cool. So, first, thank you all um, for uh, for the opportunity to share a little bit um, about myself. So, my name is Kia McGuire, as mentioned. Um, I am uh, currently a fourth-year assistant professor of higher and post-secondary education. Um, in the Mary Lou Fulton Teachers College at Arizona State University. Um, I'm also an affiliate faculty member with the School of Social Transformation here. So a little bit about, I guess, what I do. So as a higher ed scholar, uh, my work kind of focuses on two areas. So one is related to the intersecting identities and lived experiences of black students, uh, particularly trying to understand the intersections of religion, race, gender, and sexuality. Um, And I'm also interested in how students who are marginalized either by race um, or gender both experience, um, respond to, and then resist to those various forms of marginalization that they experience um, in college and university contexts. So one way that I often talk about or or try to describe myself as a scholar is someone who, being trained um, with the joint degree in higher education Africana Studies, is that I try to bring Africana Studies um, lens and theories um, and concepts to bear on a number of phenomenon and problems related to the experiences of racially minoritized students um, in colleges and universities. So thinking about all of that and um, thinking about the time you spent in the academy so far, um, we're wondering what brings you joy outside of the academy. Sure, sure. So um, brunch, um, I actually call (laughs) Yes. Most important meal of the week. Very important, very important. So I guess I should just say food, right, and kicking it with folks, but um, definitely brunch. And I, I often joke and say, like, brunch is really my church. And I think I came to that conclusion when um, I was in graduate school. I noticed uh, two things. One, I was very, very, very particular about who I um, went out to brunch and invited to brunch, which is usually kind of like the opposite, I think, of my, like, intuitive response when I'm organizing things. It's like I feel uh, really bad about, like, leaving people out, and I guess I didn't feel so bad. <laughs> Uh, when it came to brunch. And then second was also the one place where we never really talked about like work or uh, school or academic stuff, right? And I don't even think it was on purpose. It was just something I noticed after a while. So it really became like a um, like a healing place 
for us to talk about other things that had nothing to do with the academy. So that's that's one. Um, two, happy hour. We can see a little theme here. Um, <laughs> I'm not mad at it. <laughs> oh, there was some listening to you know new music, particularly like hip hop and and hip hop podcasts. Actually, um, those things are like something else. And then um, all of those things are interwoven too with spinning and kicking it with with my wife and my partner. Um, so that could be any of those things. You know, what I'm saying reading some new uh, fiction together. Uh, we often like read like a um, science fiction, um, Afrofuturistic that's, literature. That's hot. Um, that's hot. So yeah, well, she reads way more than me, so she's kind of like put me on. That's right. That's how we do. <laughs> what are your favorite brunch items? What do y'all eat oh, the most? That's my favorite. All right, so on like the very, very basic level. Yeah. And it's just probably because of how I was like raised. I like the corned beef hash that's like closer to like the corned beef hash out the can. And the can like, <laughs> with the hot sauce. You know? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yes. I had a, actually this past weekend at like a restaurant, you know what I'm saying, with some over uh, medium eggs, but yeah, they're like corned beef hash. But then I'm, I mean, it could be, it could be um, anything to like, you know, some waffles, pancakes, that type of stuff, two omelets, whatever. But yeah, close to my heart is like the corned beef hash. Yes. I, I love that. And everybody makes fun of me for wanting to eat it too. But I'm like, oh, no. Yes. They're like, no, you need it fresh. I'm like, no, yeah, I like so, it out the can. I, I, I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> I was crazy is like I grew up eating out the can. So when I first started eating out, you know, probably in grad school going to like brunch and stuff, um, and I ordered hash, I thought it was going to be that. So when the other stuff came out, I was like, this ain't corned beef hash. That's right. I need to send this back. But I mean, I like that too. That's good when it's done, you know, well, like anything. But I really love the corned beef hash with the little hard too sometimes, the white potatoes or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Me too. <laughs> I mean, not to get in your business, maybe what are some of the favorite conversations or themes y'all have had over brunch? Yeah. Uh, okay, so this this past weekend, we just had like a marathon brunch. And we talked about everything from do we want to be like our relationship to money, for instance. Do we actually want to be wealthy or do we want to even be like rich according to U.S. standards? You know, if those things are, not you know, really a part of our value systems, then what would that mean about how we make decisions for um, where we decide to live? Right. Purchasing a home, for instance. One of the things I've been struggling with, I grew up in like a working class community, lower working class community. So I always talk about like the more I get into the academy, the further I I am away from things that feel like home. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that even thinking about like, okay, purchasing a home, well, most of the places where we're encouraged to purchase homes are places that would increase in value. Um, And those aren't always neighborhoods that feel home for me. You know, what does that mean? So that was a part of the conversation. One of the homies dropped something I thought was dope was asking like, you know, what do we consider to be? like one of our major flaws, right? And how are we working on those things? So those are like the the heavier things. But then, you know, when new music drops, you know, we talk about those things, anything that's like pop culture references and stuff like that too is all kind of like interwoven throughout that. I don't want to paint this picture that is like this kind of like serious um, round table. (laughs) More like it's talking junk and then these things just kind of emerge. But yeah. And thinking about, you know, some of your interests, I don't drink a lot. It is a good condiment. It's my favorite. Um, And thinking about, you know, happy hour, if you could, what beverage best describes you? Old fashioned, a little bit on the sweet side with a large ice cube. Sophisticated. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's my go-to. That's my go-to. So, so Keon, I know we don't know who's going to be listening to us, right? But I think you have a unique perspective and you've had a unique journey that I think the people should know about. And I think okay. that you could share some insight. So could you talk us through maybe your journey as a junior faculty member, and then what has been the highs and the lows, as you feel comfortable sharing, of that journey? Sure, absolutely. So the highs, I would say three things. On a personal level, the type of flexibility that this job offers, 
or the career offers as far as how you get to use your time is something that to me on a very visceral level feels freeing right and I think in part that's just because I often joke that growing up I never saw my family's like um or parents or cousins or uh, grandparents like I never saw their who they were in, in their identity as being tied to the organization or company that they worked for right it was often seen as a job and a means to an end but in that regard too they uh, worked under conditions where you know we may use like a term like surveillance right but they worked where they had to let their bosses know if they were going to be late if they were late multiple times it became an issue if they needed to step out for like a break all of those things were closely monitored right that feels freeing at least on a day-to-day basis to some extent is the ability to be able to kind of like manage and control to some degree um, how I spend my time. So that's been amazing. The service opportunities that I've had. So I'm an advisor to a group called African-American Men at ASU. Things we do is we have this monthly book club called Visions of Black Manhood. And so we read a number of texts and engage in a number of dialogues about race, you know, policing, issues of masculinity, issues of things related to just the college experience and post-college aspirations. That's been a a great opportunity. Um, I've also co-chaired um, this is my second year of co-chairing this group here called Ethnic Studies Working Group, where we just work to put on programs um, and initiatives both on campus and within the community to promote the value of ethnic studies to a number of difficult dialogues around democracy, prison industrial complex, those type of things. So those service opportunities, honestly, has been extremely um, rewarding. And then lastly, I would say, too, just the other rewarding part has been able to engage in like ideas, right? So I think in part because I never really imagined myself to be a professor or to have this type of career. Also, I think I really fell in love with like the kind of quote unquote life of the mind and doing that type of work much later, um, like probably towards the end of undergrad. Um, I can't even really say that, maybe even really the beginning of graduate school. I've been just like fascinated and continually fascinated over time with just the opportunity to engage in ideas and really explore those through writing, research, teaching. And I would say the lows have been, probably can be captured in this transition that I kind of was hinting at earlier, which is the hardest thing for me, I feel like the more I am a part of the academy, both structurally and institutionally, I'm immersed in a world, again, that's very, very, very different than the world that I was raised in. A part of that feels like this sense of maybe identity transition, where I feel like I may not always have an anchor in one side or the other. I would say that's been the difficult part um, of this process is trying to figure out what does that mean. Also that like my life as it continues to move forward, you know, barring, you know, some catastrophe may not continue to look like the life that I once had, but also, you know, the life that folks and communities that I come from still have to live through. So thinking about that, what advice do you have for emerging scholars as they are trying to engage in transformational change and thinking about the fact, I liked what you said about not feeling like you have an anchor in one place or another. What kind of advice would you give them as they're trying to make sense of who they are in the academy, in this world? Right. Um, that's a tough one. So, yeah, I'm going to talk like I'm going to talk real stream of consciousness here. So one and this actually kind of goes back maybe to what one of the first questions about what brings me joy outside of the academy, because all of those things that I really talked about really hint at like this notion of community. For me, like community is everything. And like what I try to remind myself is that, you know, really community is is all that we have. And, you know, not some form of community clearly that like flattens out difference and like promotes this notion of sameness, but really like a heterogeneous community of folks who are still like where there's love, there's trust, there's opportunity for vulnerability, there's opportunity for joy, right, celebration and those type of things. So I would say one is um, understanding that anything that we 
do and that we'll accomplish that will be worth something, um, hopefully, and will have a larger impact must be done through community. And so um, one of the things that I've tried to do, and particularly when trying to accomplish some form of transformational change, is to, um, one, find a community who's aligned with that type of work and those type of projects, but then also make sure that my role is a role to which, like, I have to be accountable in the sense that if I'm a part of something, it will require me to show up. And if I don't show up, then the uh, how can I say it? Not that the work won't be done, but that it's important for me to be there, so to speak. And the reason I say that is because like, if I'm a part of something where my presence is not required in any particular way, it's easy for me to opt out. Whereas if I'm a part of something where it's like, okay, Keon was supposed to take the notes this week. He didn't show up to take the notes. It's like, all right, now we got to find someone to take notes. So I feel a certain sense of accountability to show up and be there. So I would say that's a couple of ways in which I think about like community. The other thing I would say too is the mental health part. I'll I, it was interesting. Like, I, I would always say, like, therapy is cool. People should do it. I would only do it, like, as a last resort, right? Like, mm. so when I would hit a, kind of a crisis moment, like, at a peak anxiety, I would go to therapy. And then maybe about two years ago, I started going to therapy here um, to talk about some of those issues that we were discussing earlier. And it has been, like, the most kind of, like, amazing experience. Um, it's one of the few places where, like, I actually felt comfortable just letting someone know like all of the things that I'm struggling with um, internally, physically, emotionally, whatever those things are, and not feeling like I'm being a burden to someone else, right? And this is probably also tied up in some sense of like, for me, what it means to be a man and try not to burden someone and take responsibilities, et cetera. Mm. So this was a place where I could just like essentially dump. And yeah, it was a, it was a great uh, moment. And I have my partner to thank for that because I would always talk about this need to go. And then um, she was the one who was really like, you really just need to make this a priority to go see someone. So that has been extremely healthy. And the last thing I would say is like remembering what to the best degree possible, value the things that really center you. And don't allow like these kind of like institutional accolades to become things that mm. value and affirm you. Right? Again, for so the people in the like, back. Say that again mm, for the people mm-hmm. in the back. <laughs> oh, <laughs> mm-hmm. so almost like there's all parts of us, right, that internalize those value systems, right? Like the journals that matter the most or the conferences that matter the most or whatever like that, right? And so for me, what I'm always trying to be conscious of and do is like not allow the external value system to become my internal value system. Mm. And so then I always think back to like, you know, how I was raised and um, I give a ton of credit to my family for is that they always valued and celebrated my blackness. And so this sounds like something small, but like, for instance, like I always tell the story of how for Christmas, if there was like a white Santa Claus that we would put on the front door, my grandmother would take like the black shoe polish and like paint his face. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So like it was always like, you know, centered and celebration of blackness. Those are the things that I try to like hold on to my ultimate goal. And I'm not there yet, but you know, I thought about it. I was like, at the end of my career, it's important to me that if I have a banquet or celebration, that the people who show up aren't just people who are institutionally affiliated. But that is really the community, right? Like folks who I've built sustained relationships with over time. I'm in community with them and they're celebrating with me because we've been on this journey together. You know, I still have some work to do to make sure that my energies and my activities are aligned with that ultimate goal. But that's kind of like my ultimate goal. I want to be validated at the end of the day by the communities for whom I say that my work is about and who I'm here to serve. Thank you for sharing that, Keon. I think that's really important. And I, I don't th- always do a good job at it, though, just to, you know what I mean, like all of us, but, you know. I, I just don't know who's not struggling with that. Right. And, right, I, and right. I think for what you shared, it's a constant reminder, right, of thinking mm-hmm. about that and recentering. So all the buzz lately, and then by the time this release to the masses, I think it will still be all the buzz, that's is right. Wakanda <laughs> yeah. forever, right? Like Wakanda forever, son. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I know I know you're a deep you're a deep dude you're a deep brother. So I, I would like to get your thoughts on one particular like social media debate that's happening right yeah. now. As you continue to make meaning of manhood, like what are your thoughts on the dichotomous philosophies of Killmonger and the Black Panther? Yeah. So 
I'm going to do my best because I've only, I've only seen the movie once. Um, and I think I was just so excited, mm. you know what I'm saying? The movie was just dope. Are you, were y'all familiar with Ryan Coogler before? Oh, absolutely. Like this, okay. Yeah. So, like, I knew his name, but I'd never, like, heard him, like, talk or share perspectives. And so, earlier, remember when I was, like, I like podcasts and stuff? Like, I spend so much time, what I say, like, too plugged into the culture, right? Like, <laughs> so I, like, <laughs> I watched, like, his interview, Michael B. Jordan's interview, um, the dude. But both of their interviews on Hot 97. I'm watching, like, the podcast that are talking about it, too plugged in. But anyway... That was the first time I saw Kugler actually talking. The dude, he seems like a dude who's just like mad center. Like, oh yeah. So y'all, Have you seen y'all the one of him explaining the fight scene, like from a director's point of view? Have you seen that? No, you I'll, gotta send me I'll that send link. You that. Yeah, yeah. Because right, there's yeah, no code nah, switching. Nah, nah, nah. Like, there's no code switching at all with him, right? But like, well, yeah. all of his intellect and all of his blackness come out, right. and I'm just like amazed by, you know? Yeah, no, it, it definitely seems like that's the thing, right? Like the moment he starts talking, you're like the code switching part. Is exactly what you said, man. I don't, I don't need you drop the gem. I don't need to repeat it, but um. <laughs> So, yeah, so that's the thing. So my perspective on just, like, how masculinity is represented. Yeah, particularly these two, these two. and some would say very different characters. Some would argue yeah. very similar characters, right? Yeah, yeah. Again, stream of consciousness. So one thing, the moments that I love the most, well, before I go to that, let me just say the critique part, right? So particularly with, I think there's an important critique around how um, Killmonger's character just totally disregarded women in general, but black women in particular, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, definitely captured in how he just, like, shoots his girl um, before he gets on the plane in this kind of like revolutionary rage, right? So like the way that black women are disposable for his cause and assumed in that is is hugely uh, problematic. So, so I would say that's um, one thing. The other thing too, though, I think like to a certain degree, the Black Panther almost because he's like, um, shrouded in like the the form of the hero. A couple things made me uncomfortable was so there's that moment when he's when he walks in to talk to Forrest Whitaker to get the true story mm-hmm. out, um, in the garden, and he's just like tells all the people to leave. But he's he's he can do that because he's the king. But I'm like yo, these are like elders. You know what I'm right. saying? Like you need to be respectful. You know what I'm saying? So, but I think a part of that is even while we celebrate what um, he represents and what's what Wakanda represents, Wakanda at the end of the day still is like a nation state in which at the end in the UN he's presented as like the sovereign ruler so i'm like i'm not here for no sovereign ruler and all that shit but i respect all the the other stuff that, that he's building so i would say those is my two critiques but the powerful moments to me were a couple of things one was when black panther talked to his father both of those times i think that there's like that kind of intergenerational dialogue that mm-hmm. is important um that affirmed him over his fears and anxiety first conversation then when he came back to kind of confront his father um, i thought that was also important um his father's also feedback that you know, you don't have to be perfect, right? So there's not like this kind of perfect form of leadership or masculinity that you need to achieve. And that is built surrounding yourself with people who you can trust is important. So I, I thought that was dope. Um, but the most powerful scene to me, and, and part of this may also be in part because I didn't grow up with my biological father, but when Killmonger is transforming into the Black Panther and you see him like crying while he's talking to his father, um, Sterling K. Brown's yeah. uh, character, that to me was just like, amazing right and in part because there's very few opportunities to see what i consider to be like pure emotional vulnerability and conversation between black men about their fears about their confusion about their anxiety about their sense of loss um i thought that was also captured you know well when his the younger version of killmonger was like holding his dad as he died so like i think to me those were the the, like most powerful moments that resonated with me because again like I think maybe outside of Moonlight, there's like a few moments in recent kind of media where that vulnerability, where people like sit with it, right? Like, you know, the movie South Central? Yeah. All right. So, you know, at the end of the movie, when um, OG Bobby Johnson like turns the gun from the side, like up straight, mm-hmm. 
So I remember watching that movie as a kid, and like I, I'm pretty sure I cried at that point, right? Like I had a little tear coming down. He was crying, and he was like coming back to get his son, and that was such a also like a powerful moment. And that movie, you know, explores masculinity in a, in a certain way as well. Those type of moments stick out to me, driven by love. Men can express vulnerability, and they're not shown to be weak. Um, and you just kind of have to sit with that as a viewer of the film. So it's I'll black men there. too, not just Absolutely. men. It's black men. Yeah. Yeah, black yeah, men. Yes, yeah. definitely black men. Right. Yeah. 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 I'm about to get my card revoked for this one. I didn't watch that last movie. I'm sorry. Nah, you ain't got to You ain't got to get your card revoked. Like, I don't know what that would is. <laughs> that's, that's, that's it's like a good. '90s for you. That's yeah. 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 <laughs> it was a blur for me. Mm-hmm. All good. All good. I can't contribute to that part, but I, <laughs> I I have some critiques. I think overall the film was beautiful i've seen it three mm-hmm. times i went seen to it see twice, it okay, three okay. times <laughs> and every Shout time i have a new layer because even thinking about killmonger and how they framed him from a u.s perspective as someone that would tear down the whole house in the name of the revolution right will mm-hmm. harm women uh, black women in the name of the revolution i also saw how there was also some positioning of power amongst black women and noting that it is because of black women that this thing will succeed and will survive so or um, can be saved right like or they were also destruct the architects of saving wakanda as well mm-hmm. right, right. Yeah. Yeah. I know that a lot of people have some issues with even how they try to pit countries in Africa, let's be clear, uh, against the U.S. black perspective. Um, And I feel like that came out in this movie as well. It's all hurled up in Killmonger and who he was. Um, Because even at one point when they were fighting on the train scene, the Black Panther looked at him and said, you're going to tear this whole thing down. Like, you're going to be the reason why this this is destroyed because of who you are and how you've been raised um, in in your particular society. Um, And this is why we never reached out to you in the first place. I thought that was interesting. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Interesting. (laughs) (laughs) I think my biggest critique, I I thought it was interesting that in this very first iteration of the film, because I'm understanding there's going to be more, the villain had to be another black person. Like, I understand that in the comic book, Mm -hmm. Killmonger, a character. I understand there are other characters in there that are perceived as villains. They're black men. But I thought it was interesting that in in this first iteration, the biggest force of concern was not like the U.S. government. Right. You know, and and actually a CIA agent is painted as an ally. This groundbreaking movie, the the villain had to be another black person. Yeah. Despite all that, I still loved it. We are so beautiful. Yeah, so, yes, I agree. But I I don't think we can dismiss Claw and the the South African representation as well, his goons and what that represented as well as far as the continent and what was happening. Yeah, no, he was there, but I mean, I I I think the way they framed him, though, is still so throwaway. Background, yeah. He was just easily thrown away even, right? So it was like, oh, well, don't pay attention to him. He's not really that big of a deal. Look at this black man. Mm That stood out to me the second time. I didn't catch that the first time. Yeah, um, no, I, I think you're right too, right? Like some of this is just an artifact of the narrative that is handed to them from the comic book. So so part of it is that. But I mean, of course, people have like some freedom to reimagine some things. Chadwick was doing an interview, um, either Hot 9-7 or Breakfast Club, I can't remember. But he was talking about how what he appreciated about it was that it was clearly a conversation among the diaspora. Yeah. Didn't center like right a white voice, but where non-black folks could look in on the conversation. I thought, you know, part of it is, I imagine, the, the like centralness of kind of the, the intra, I guess, diversity, black dialogue then meant that if there was someone who was going to be positioned as the the counter to the the hero, then that person would be black. But I know also too they've been trying to frame it as like not a villain but an antagonist. And I think some of that, you know, there's some humanizing moments within the film that allow us to maybe sympathize with Kamanga. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Did y'all see Killmonger as like quote unquote like the African American? Like uh, the stereotypes that they would portray African Americans to be, or what do you, what do you mean? No, just like um, well, I guess I'll just I'll make the statement instead of doing it as a question because I can't frame it. When I was watching it, I know that I was supposed to read him as like, oh, this is someone who's like native born African American, but because he was so closely connected, like one generation removed, um, he knew like that he was from Wakanda. He knew that he had the mark on his lip, and maybe also too because we never see his mother, who's African American. Mm-hmm. Like all of the people who are associated with him are from Wakanda. I saw it more so as like an internal debate or fight, whatever disagreement between like family from the same place, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Then like, you know what I'm saying? I don't know if that's coming off if what I'm saying is making sense. No, I think I think it makes sense because in many ways he knew his roots much more, mm-hmm. much more deeply because of his yeah. father, because of the things he found, because of the mark and the lit. Like he knew his roots mm-hmm. much more deeply than the general right African-American that people were trying to right. draw connections or associate with, right? So he yeah, knew where he yeah. came from. He knew his royal blood. He had an understanding of those things. Right. Yeah. He walked up in there and was like, hey, auntie. Right. <laughs> <laughs> My favorite line. <laughs> I think I didn't connect it that way, but now in thinking about it conceptually, of course he was like a first generation individual. It was hard for me to see him anything other than, like I had a hard time even seeing him as a Cali boy because all I heard was Jersey the whole time, to be honest. Right, right, yeah. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> even That's when he, real. hey, auntie, like, right, come right, on. Right. <laughs> Well, Keon, we're running out of time yeah. and I know you sure. have things to do. So we're really appreciative of you spending time with us today. But we're going to go into speed round. OK, bet, bet. You ready? So the rules yeah. are you have to just go off the dome. You can't like sit there and try to figure it out. Scary, man. Yeah. Scary. First answer that pops in your okay. head. Yeah, all yeah, right. yeah. All right, all right. They're going to be easy. <laughs> all right. So first one, East Coast or West Coast? East Coast. Chicken or fish? Fish. Seat at the table or lemonade? <laughs> seat at the table. Seat at the table. Uh, spilling tea or low-key shade? Low-key shade. Family matters or blackish? Neither. <laughs> All right, family matters, family matters. Ooh, disrespectful. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, blackish inspired me to, to celebrate Juneteenth. What you talking about? <laughs> oh, we got to have a whole nother off the uh, <laughs> conversation about that. Yeah. We, well, hopefully you could come back and talk to us again. Thank you. Yeah, we appreciate yeah, you. And thank you yeah, for the gems you so dropped. Much. Now, thank you all for creating this dope space. Like, um, I didn't know what to expect, but like, I think this like humanizing side to, to the Academy in our lives is like important to capture. So thank you all for y'all like time, energy and effort to, to make sure that it's reflected. So yeah, good luck with everything. And I uh, hope you'll have a good weekend and a good brunch at some point over the That's weekend. That's right. Yes, thank you. <laughs> thank you. You too. No problem. All right, y'all take care. That was fun with Dr. McGuire. He got me ready for brunch. He was so good. He was so good. Let's chat a little bit uh, about what's going on at the University of Akron. Recently, the University of Akron president, Matthew Wilson, lost the bid for president at the University of Central Florida. Mm. Wilson was eliminated from consideration during the earlier half of March for president of the University of Central Florida. 
Now he is stepping down as president of the University of Akron in July to rejoin faculty ranks, apologizing for the fact that he pursued the presidency at the University of Central Florida. Akron trustees welcomed him back as president after he lost the Central Florida bid to UCF Provost Dale Whitaker. However, several members of the Akron community were disappointed to learn that Wilson pursued the position at UCF. Now, just last June, Forbes encouraged millennials to stop apologizing for job hopping. So, Cameron, what are your thoughts on this situation? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So, first of all, this is messy Mm. in the sense of higher ed, academic leadership, right? But it's like any presidential search is not a secret, right? Any presidential search, any provost search. I don't think any dean search is a secret. We just we just hired Maud. Hey Maud. I I saw that. Mm, Yeah. But was I mean, but was it yes, it was secret in the sense of it's not in the media, right? But we were not told until she accepted. We got an email the day before they announced nationally. No one knew. Patrick, did you know? No one knew. Like they legitimately did not. She did not do on campus. Patrick talks about wonderful. Hey, Patrick. Support. They didn't. Yeah, they didn't do on campus interviews or anything. Well, before to me, that's just not. That's not a search. Mm. Somebody tapped somebody and said, "Hey, will you come and do this?" Definitely an outstanding candidate, outstanding opportunity. To me, that's not a presidential search. Mm. But for me, I agree with you know. As a, uh, I'm on the high end of the millennial <laughs> as far as the age bracket goes. <laughs> so obviously, I just took a job that's pretty public now mm-hmm. and. I've only been in my current role for two years, so some would see this as job hopping, right? Um, but it was an opportunity, mm-hmm. and it's a great institution. I'm so <laughs> so excited to become a part of the LifeNet. That's um, right. <laughs> I did get some advice from people like, "Hey, you need to be there for three or four years before you up and leave the, the current institution I'm at." Opportunities present themselves. Going to interview somewhere is not accepting the opportunity. Engaging someone in conversation is not accepting the opportunity. But getting to understand what else might be out there for you at this time in your life. It might not be seen as as your timing by someone else. Someone else's timing is not God's timing. Mm -hmm. So for someone to close the door on an opportunity, I don't think that's fair. Yeah, I don't either. I also think it's interesting that he had to apologize or felt the need to apologize. I hear you. And I'm trying to play it out in my head. The only need for an apology is what did he say to them when he was inaugurated as president? So, like, did he outline something? Did he explicitly say, I'm going to be here for the next five or ten years? That's the interesting thing about his story. So he was interim president and then eventually became president after the matter of, like, months, right? Like six months maybe. And didn't really have the full ability to even process what was happening. I think what people were really responding negatively to was the fact that during his on-campus interview in Florida, he was talking about the reasons why he wanted to come there. In addition to the fact that he had the skill set, he was saying, we've always wanted to move back to Florida. We have roots here. This is where we're from. People are taking issue with that. Because they're seeing it as disloyal. I don't know. I've heard this. You probably heard it. But someone said it directly to me. And I apologize. I'm not giving you credit. But somebody told me that these institutions are not loyal to you. So why are you trying to be loyal to them? That, that was me. Oh, okay. That hey, friend. actually me. Hey, hey friend. <laughs> <laughs> I was about to go and jump into my soapbox. Yes. Uh, because they are institutions at the end of the day. They're structures that have always been bent to destroy us as people of color, underrepresented folks, queer folks. So, like... No, I'm not then going to align myself with something that was actually constructed to destroy me. And I always question people that question your intentions or your loyalty when presented with maybe an opportunity that can promote your growth. Mm -hmm. I always question those people as well. Next segment. Let's talk about what's been problematic. Mm. 
So what's on my mind this week? So what's problematic is being passive aggressive in the workplace. <laughs> Let me explain, but I think it needs no explanation. Pet peeve of mine is specifically colleagues or coworkers ask me a question they already know the answer to just to be passive aggressive. So, you know, we're at a meeting. It's eight o'clock. Me and you are the only ones at the meeting. And you come at me talking about, doesn't the meeting start at eight? <laughs> you know the meeting starts at eight. We're the only ones here. Check what? your email so everybody shows up. <laughs> like I am. <laughs> um, worried about everybody else and have no self-awareness of how you get on everybody else's nerves. Mm, preach. That's, pro- that's problematic. Sending an email, you want to get passive aggressive and out of pocket. I check you via email in a very professional manner. Per your last email. Per, please. <laughs> <laughs> But then you want to play the victim. Mm, mm-hmm. That is problematic. So I'm pleased that this week, none of this applies to me. <laughs> <laughs> but you've been on the other end. You know these people. I mean, we've experienced, we've all experienced them like in our everyday lives. And I always try to think like, am I being that person? Right? Like some emails I've seen, not current work situation, but in my previous work situations, I read the email and I'm like, you like had the nerve to send it. Like you had the nerve to send this to me. But you ain't going to say it to my face. Never. Mm-mm. And I just want to know where you get all this confidence. Like, where does that confidence come from? <laughs> that barrier that door <laughs> creates when they close themselves in their office. <laughs> you know, I can also tell when people are BCCing folks Ooh. based on the way that they frame and phrase yeah. certain things. Like, you can just tell. I yeah. feel like I've gotten really skilled at determining when they are BCCing people. But what really irks me is when we're having a conversation and then you want to CC everybody in they mama. Oh, yes. Uh-uh. Don't come for me. Yes. Unless I call for you. To me, that's passive aggressive. Mm-hmm. That's, that's email aggressive. Mm-hmm. Ooh. People, people can get email aggressive. Talk to me. <laughs> what you just said, mm-hmm. right? Like you you want to show everyone, right? Like look how Shauna's acting mm-hmm. and look how I'm acting, mm-hmm. right? The other thing is for people to get crunk over a listserv. I think people get confident with an audience and feel like they can do or say certain things and they're going to try to keep it cute over the listserv, but they want to want everybody to see that they're getting you together. They're attempting. They're attempting to get you together. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> No, no, no. I'm good with my words. Mm-hmm. And then we're, and then I think we're going to have a conversation about this. And that's when they, and I think that's when the victim thing comes out. Like, hey, you know, no, that wasn't the intention. No, you read that wrong. Pretty emotionally intelligent person. Pretty aware and conscious of my surroundings. Pretty good interpersonal skills. You know what I do these days? If I get these emails, I don't respond. I show up in people's offices. <laughs> knock, knock. I'm here. You had a question? Hey, sis. Let's talk about this line. Oh, I printed it out. You need a copy? I'm about to talk to you about this. And I don't care if you cry. I have tissues in my pocket. <laughs> if I see one more person crying in my face, miss me with your tears. Fix your email. And fix how you're talking to me. And I know people are like, that sounds insensitive, right? Like, But instead of asking me why... I'm not being sensitive to someone's crying. You need to be asking where's the root of why this person is crying, right? Like what emotion are you trying to evoke out of me? What sympathy are you trying to get from others? What guilt are you feeling that is then being translated into the emotion? I think- and, and people are weaponizing tears. Oh, <laughs> I mean, let's be real about this. No, you will not. You will not try to shut down this conversation with your tears. I'll wait. I'm patient. You know, a little H2O never bother me. Little saline. You're not gonna stop me with your saline. Weaponizing tears. 
Cheers out there. Don't don't try and use that because Cameron and I will be writing on that <laughs> 2018. Woo! <laughs> that was a word. That was a word. Mm-hmm. You gave the people a word. Thank you. That's what problematic is. Weaponizing tears. Well, let's get ready for these jokes. I got jokes. Uh, Am I ready for this? Shit. I think they're funny. <laughs> okay. So, <clears throat> again, for those that aren't aware, I'm going to tell these really great jokes. They're great. And then I'm going to see if I can get Cameron to laugh at them. All right. If you think they're funny, I think we should cackle at home. All right. So, what's Forrest Gump's password? <laughs> You're laughing already. I don't know. One Forest One. <laughs> <laughs> if you see a robbery at an Apple store, does that make you an eye witness? I pod. <laughs> Thank you. Why shouldn't you write with a broken pencil? No lead. Because it's pointless. <laughs> What's brown and sticky? Mm, so nasty. <laughs> a stick. <laughs> You're ridiculous. <laughs> what do you call a pig that does karate? Oink oink. A, <laughs> a pork chop. <laughs> all right, all right. Final one. Why are there gates around cemeteries? Because people are dying to get in. <laughs> Good night. <laughs> so Gloria Anzaldúa, she wrote, Though we tremble before uncertain futures, may we meet illness, death, and adversity with strength. May we dance in the face of our fears. And so I don't know about y'all, but... I've been having a hard time at work and in my personal life just because they bleed together. And some of y'all might be as well. And my hope for you is that you're finding healthy ways to work through stress, finding ways to connect with yourself, and finding ways to really make the most of the moments that we have on this earth. That's the Scholar Tea this week. Mm -hmm. Enjoy your week, people. We'll see you next week.